1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman. This week we have a little something special. We have... Kind of a crossover episode with Kate Harding and Samina Mukhopadhyay, who are the editors of the brand new anthology, Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance and Revolution in Trump's America, which is out literally today, October 3rd, if you're hearing this on the day it comes out. We got together because they've also launched, in coordination with their book launch, a new podcast of their own, which they're calling Feminasty, which I love, which you should totally subscribe to. I'm going to introduce this. We didn't get to do like a normal intro outro with them because it was both shows at once. Um, So I'm going to introduce this in a second, but also you should know that this is only part of our conversation. I left out some of the juicy bits intentionally, so you'll also go listen when they air the episode they did with me on Feminasty, which is, you'll hear some of the same conversation and some different bits. So we start out, of course, with the lightning round, and the first person you'll hear speaking here is Samita. Are you ready? (laughs) Yes, I guess so. Okay, what's been making you the happiest
3: this week? Well, obviously, this week, uh, what's making me the happiest is is our book coming out.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good point. Since this is airing on October 3rd, that is definitely the thing we're happiest about. And uh, I suspect we will have had a great event in D.C. the night before this airs. And we'll be looking forward to uh, our events
2: around the country. All right. What is the best sex advice you ever received?
3: Well, Jacqueline, I feel like some of the best sex advice I ever read Was your piece about casual sex giving you the ability to not confuse sexual intimacy With emotions that are more meaningful than that And the importance of kind of like creating that distinction When it feels right in my life
2: Yay, aww Aww. You're the first person to come on and tell me that the best sex advice they received was from me There you go I can't believe more people don't suck up. Um, No, they they suck up in a in a a question that comes later. I've actually had to make a rule that you can't answer me to that question, but they don't uh, suck up in this question.
0: (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I don't know. The best sex advice I ever received was probably use birth control. That's (laughs) solid advice. You know? Yeah, but in in terms of just having good sex, I can't think of who I've heard it from or where I've read it. Freedom. Well, one person that I'll say, and it's it's I didn't necessarily get it from her, but she's written extensively on it, is um, Rachel Hills. Her book, The Sex Myth, was so great at kind of exploding the idea that we all only have you know one kind of sex or one kind of sex is right, and everybody who's not doing that is somehow you know, fucked
2: up. And that we're all super sexed all the time. Right. Yeah.
0: Yes. And that we're all super sexed all the time and that, it, you know, that never changes. and never fluctuates or anything like that. So I like the work that she has done there. Um, but yeah, otherwise pretty much wrap it up.
2: All right. Excellent. Wrap it up. <laughs> wrap her up. That is perennially good advice. <laughs> yes. yeah. In terms of news or current events related to sex and sexuality, What's been making you the maddest or saddest lately? So for me, dress codes. I just saw another thing about
0: a school that is having for their um, homecoming dance, something like this. They're having every student who plans to wear a dress has to send it into the school for approval.
2: Oh, I saw. I just saw the headline and I was
0: like, not today, Satan. Yeah, Um. right. Like, are you kidding me with this? Um, And a friend of mine, I posted on Facebook and she wrote about it and she had told me she's got a kindergartner who has a dress code. She is not allowed to wear tank tops or tank dresses. The dress code says they must have underwear on, which, you know. That is fucking creep.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Like five year olds. What are you talking about? Uh, Yeah. That constant policing of female sexuality, even when they're tiny babies,
3: is what's making me maddest this week definitely the like Ted Cruz horn <laughs> oh, um, <God. laughs> like thing that that's like it yeah. just like made me upset for so many reasons let me count the ways so number one <laughs> that's disgusting like I do not want any reminder that Ted Cruz has a sex drive or right. penis body parts like or that he uses them in any way like I think that alone is an off- offense to sex and like <laughs> it's, like direct offense to my sexuality and as as someone who's burdened with the the dis-ease of of being attracted to men and (laughs) (laughs) the second is it really led me down a dark hole of not knowing that there was so much pornography on twitter and it was all really like raunchy and bad pornography and i will say that like of the pornography I use, I tend to focus on porn that's like made for women or is made by companies that have, you know, have accounted for labor rights and things like that. And so just kind of the reckless abandon with which the porn industry has grown um, and how much that impacts our culture and the way that people and specifically young people, because they have access to so much pornography, has on pleasure and female pleasure. And that really like just was kind of like, wow, like we've made so much progress in terms of women expressing what they want from their own sexuality but actually there's this like whole underbelly that we still don't talk about and i feel like we almost lost the conversation because everyone's like don't be kink shaming don't be this don't be that and it's like no of course not but have you seen this stuff like what woman, right. is woman like, like yeah. i don't want anyone to do that to me that's terrible you know like the very mechanical and like very objectifying kind of sex acts and that's what i feel angry about right now
2: well, can I add a th- number three to your reasons it was horrible? Because he, like, then tweeted, like, oh, my God, like, you- Americans are so hung up about sex. Like, get over yourselves. Yeah. And I was like, what? Like <laughs> wh- What? I still can't exactly inform words. Like, Ted Cruz wants to control all of our fucking bodies.
0: Right. Oh, and, God. you know, he's thinking, like, well, at least it was straight porn. So that's all uh, <laughs> that's all he gives a shit about in terms of his audience.
2: <laughs> words fail. OK, What's the biggest sex myth that you used to believe but don't believe anymore?
3: That a hard-on is a compliment. Yes.
2: Good one.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And the flip side of that, that, you know, people who don't fit a certain body type or certain appearance don't get to have sex or don't deserve sex. And
2: specifically, I guess, that I didn't deserve sex in the body that I was in. We all deserve pleasure,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and human sexual attraction is a wild and varied things. If you have a body, someone's into your kind of body,
0: right? That's exactly it. That's the thing that nobody was saying when I was a kid. Was just every pot has a lid. People are into lots of different things. It was so. I mean, now with the internet and, you know, as much as the proliferation of bad porn is a might be a problem, there's also just so many more places to kind of get information about sex and sexuality and the kind of sex that people are having. Whereas I was just growing up, you know, reading the same three magazines that all told me I would be worthy of love and sex if I got thinner.
2: Yep. yep. All right. Lastly, and this is the question where people tend to suck up to me so you can't say me. <laughs> <laughs> who's one of the bravest people that you can think of who's doing work to unscrew the sexual culture in one way or, or another?
3: I would say Serlina Maxwell. Uh, yes you know I mean she's just bore the brunt of talking about rape culture really publicly I mean she's talked about it on Fox News Mm -hmm. it's like the majority of what people troll her about and I just think that considering that she's a survivor and how traumatizing that is every step of the way. She she never backs down and she continues to lift up the voices of women that have been sexually assaulted, continually bring that into all of the work she does, no matter how kind of far up she goes in. You know, I mean, she was like a very high level person on the Clinton campaign, but at no point stepped away from that being her story and, you know, using it as a platform to really raise awareness about sexual assault and and the importance of women telling their stories.
0: Absolutely. And I think I will go with a more general compliment to my former colleagues and the people I still work with all the time as a speaker who are on the ground at colleges and universities right now trying to make sense of all of this Title IX uncertainty and trying to encourage students to have healthy, positive sex lives and not rape each other. Um, and finding that balance into how to get that kind of messaging out there. Um, so basically, all the people in the women's centers, in the LGBTQ centers, I see you in the Title IX offices who are getting it from both sides where, you know, people are claiming that they're prosecution happy and then other people, you know, a lot of victims going through the process don't find it satisfying at all. I see the work those people are doing and uh, I'm grateful for it because it does get through to some.
2: Yes, you know, fantastic. Absolutely.
0: Sort of same question back to you. Who do you think is exceptionally brave out there and or doing excellent work on unscrewing the culture?
2: I want to shout out Sadie Doyle. Oh, nice. I just think that her writing is so morally clear and emotionally clear. Every time I read her, I learn something about me. My thoughts get clearer, but also I feel... I want to get corny, but I just feel like my heart open up because I feel like it's so easy right now to just sort of shut down. And I struggle with that a lot. And so I really appreciate the emotionalness that she brings to her work, especially when Uh, emotionalness is 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 often treated as uh, a weakness when it's from. Sure.
0: There's you know, there's a vulnerability in her writing and and people, you know, take that and use it as. License to just hit her in her softest spots yeah. all the time. And she gets constantly so much crap. Um, and I should note, Sadie Doyle, nasty women contributor.
2: Um, woo-hoo! So, woo-hoo! There are a lot of smart writers, but she's mm-hmm. smart. And and
3: she makes me feel like oh, she she great. puts me
2: back in touch with my feelings. And I really appreciate that work. That's hard labor.
3: Yeah. And that she like goes back to it after she is attacked constantly. Yeah, definitely. So many women like that. You know, there was a study
0: that just came out within the last couple of weeks it was about reddit shutting down the hate sites oh. and how that improved the discourse overall just like okay. we've all been saying <laughs> right just like we've all been saying about comments about twitter about on, all online interaction that basically like yeah you have to moderate out the worst crap in order to make room
2: for the conversation that people need to have not to be all pluggy but i talk about this in unscrewed the idea that these people who own these platforms have that there's some kind of ideal neutral platform that you can have that right. if you don't interfere with free speech that somehow you'll reach this like beautiful neutral nirvana and it's absolute bullshit right yeah. like these guys then they're all fucking guys who own these platforms <laughs> and i've been in meetings with them and they basically think that free speech and safety are intention because their free speech is in tension with women and people of color and trans people's safety right Right, that's right that's what that framework actually means yeah because you know both of you know like our free speech is only available to us when we are safe enough to speak yeah so you have this idea that
0: if we put no restrictions on speech whatsoever then we'll just get to hear all voices equally and that's never how it happens what you have Are some voices drowning out the other voices? And who's going to be doing the drowning out? It's the people who are rude enough to keep shouting the people who don't give a shit what anybody else has to say. Those are the people who are going to win the kind of free speech contest if we pretend that all we have to do is like hold out the microphone and let everyone speak at once. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, it's bullshit that our public squares are now owned by private companies. It's incredibly problematic. But as long as that's true until we find a way to make that not true again, I think that the goal should be less neutrality and more transparency. Right. Like each of these companies should say what their goddamn values are and live up to them. And that's going to alienate some users, which is why they don't want to do it, right? But they're already alienating users by being like, it's okay if you get rape and death threats and racist abuse and Nazis and whatever, depending on who you are, like, constantly when you try to speak. Like, (laughs) you have to pick a team. You have to decide who is your priority and what your values are if you're going to run a platform where people interact with each other.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I feel like with we kind of learned that the hard way in the early years of feminist blogging, right? Because it was, no one really knew what to do with comments early on. And you realize quickly that you, as a website administrator, administrator are judged for the company you keep right and so whether we want it to be intentional or not you end up giving people platforms and they reproduce certain dynamics in these spaces and and i think that that is that does hold up a new responsibility for the twitters of the world you know like that that does create a new responsibility to be able to create space where people can equitably kind of engage in those conversations without having to be you know attacked every step of the way Absolutely.
0: I was just reading through some old essays earlier, and one thing that I wrote that I published on Dame a couple of years ago was about that entire war. And When I started, when I was writing for Salon in 2008 to 2010, the powers that be were still very much like, you have to get in there and engage with commenters. If you just oh. go and show them that you're a real person, they'll stop. And everybody knows that, especially, like I don't even know, I haven't looked in years, but Salon comments were a cesspool at that point. And the idea that I was supposed to be going in there for, like, there would be no amount of money that would have made that okay, but what they were paying you're me definitely like not. Right? Like, yeah. right, right. To go in there and take that abuse. And I was just like, this is where people just weren't caught up to the fact that this is our workplace now. And what you're saying is that, like, every time I turn in a report to my supervisor, I have to stand there and have. 11 guys who don't work here scream at me that I'm a stupid bitch. That's not good for anybody's free speech. And so, you know, looping this back to courage, it absolutely takes a ton of courage to be out there doing this. I think, you know, we were talking on a Facebook thread the other day with Anita Sarkeesian, who is the same, you know, she has been so relentlessly harassed and threatened, and she's still out there doing it, which I love. That's just incredibly brave and incredibly nasty,
2: I think. Incredibly nasty, yeah. Yes. Zoe Quinn too. I just got to be in conversation with her at her Boston book event for a Crash Override, and we had her on the show on Unscrewed too. Oh, awesome. And and the thing that Zoe is doing that I think is delightfully courageous and nasty is also saying, I don't want to be the poster child for this anymore. Like. I didn't sign up to be an activist or like take on all the tech companies and I've done a bunch of that work, but actually I want to get back to making sex farce video games with Chuck Tingle, right? Like, and and I actually really love that. I remember, it seems like not that long ago, probably to us, but it actually is probably a while ago when all the photos came out and the stuff came out about Chris Brown abusing Rihanna. Mm -hmm. And in the aftermath of that, Everyone was, like, fucking policing Rihanna and, like, whether or not she was being a good role model. And I was like, girlfriend did not sign up for abuse. And therefore, she did not sign up to be a good role model to anybody. She was living her life, you know, being a rock star, actually. And she should be able to go on doing that. And so... I don't give a shit if she comes out with an SM-themed th- single or what. Like, she doesn't owe us anything because she somebody abused her. And that's how I feel about Zoe, like, having that courage. I'm grateful for the work that Zoe's done. She's done some great work around her husband and abuse. But I love that she's standing up and saying, honestly, like, this is not my gig. Like, yeah. I didn't choose this, and so fuck you. I'm going back to the stuff I choose. Yeah, I think more broadly,
0: that's... Another form of courage that I really admire is when people are willing to say, like, this is not for me and I'm going to quit it. Yeah. The I think there are so many times when we are encouraged, especially as women, to just kind of like stick it out and sacrifice for other people and to be able to say, like, no, I'm that that is not what I wanted. And especially it happens when you're a victim. You know, I remember after I was raped in college, people kept telling me, you're so strong, you're so strong. And I kept being like, fuck that. Like, I don't want to be strong. (laughs) Like, I want to be weak and not in this position. Like, that would be what I would prefer. And that strength just didn't feel meaningful to me when it was something that I was forced into.
3: Yeah.
1: Hey
2: Unscrewed Nation, time for an announcement break. I have a lot going on this fall and I'd love for you to be a part of it. On October 18th, I will be joining Samita Mukhopadhyay and Kate Harding live on stage at the Boston Athenaeum to talk about their rad new anthology, Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance and Revolution in Trump's America. You can get info about that event at bostonathenaeum.org. And of course, I am also gearing up for the release of Unscrewed the Book, which is more officially known as Unscrewed Women's Sex Power and How to Stop Letting the System Screw Us All. So you're definitely going to want to go to GetUnscrewed.com and click over to the events page where you'll find the tour schedule. This is just the dates we have so far. More dates are still being planned. So if you don't see your city there, let me know. And I will definitely see if I can make it. The whole tour is being made possible by the fantastic folks at the Pleasure Chest. Since 1971, the year I was born, the Pleasure Chest has firmly believed that everyone has a fundamental right to pursue sexual fulfillment with boutiques in New York, L.A., and Chicago, which I will be most definitely stopping for tour events for Unscrewed. The Pleasure Chest is committed to accurate pleasure-based education and offers an array of free weekly workshops through their Pleasure Ed program, which is open to anyone looking to expand their pleasure IQ. Their highly trained and sensitive staff is ready to help you find what you're looking for in a safe and judgment-free environment. Prefer to do your sexy shopping online? Visit PleasureChest.com and browse their diverse range of products and special collections curated by today's top sex educators like past Unscrewed guests L. Chase and Tristan Taramino, plus Midori, Reed McCallo, and lots more. Check out PleasureChest.com for a complete listing of upcoming events nationwide. And because I got y'all, you can use the code UNSCREWED at checkout and enjoy a free PleasureChest lube with every purchase. All right. See it out there. Now back to the show. It, it reminds me of something which is a little bit different, which is, you guys know, and I think that's probably why you picked me for courage, you know, that I have a tattoo on my arm that says brave. Yes. And I got that tattoo for like really personal reasons, which was, it's mostly about trying to live up to it, right? It's It's like a note to self. <laughs> like when you're faced with a choice between the easy path and what you know to be the right path, like it's commitment to always try and take the right path over the easy path. Nice. In subsequent years, i started to think like, people must think it's like really braggadocio. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so brave. And I've been in meetings with people who've been through like unbearable shit and survived and been like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed about my tattoo. <laughs> but That's n- neither here nor there. People tend to tell me they think I'm brave when I stand up and talk about having been the victim of sexual abuse. And I don't feel like that's brave of me anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, it was at first when I started doing it, but I also was really driven to do it. And now I just am in such a place. It's so long ago, and I've done so much work and come through the other side, and I just feel like I don't feel ashamed of this. I mean, I may be brave because I know that, like, a lot of assholes are going to target me (laughs) because (laughs) of it. I'll take that. But, like, just speaking my truth and telling my story, I feel like... I want to like, I'm glad that people are listening if they're listening and it doesn't feel. Yeah. I just reject that fucking stigma. Like, I feel like in order to assume that I'm brave, you have to assume that I accept the stigma.
3: Right. I think what feels brave to us being surrounded by people that encourage us to tell our stories and, you know, in in many ways, like our careers have almost been rewarded, right. For, you know, our said bravery I think to yeah. the average person who kind of doesn't have access to that kind of stuff, like it is very brave. Right. And and even for me, I mean, I took years to finally come out and talk about being sexually assaulted. And I, I recently wrote about my experience um, for this essay I, I did for Roxane Gay's upcoming book about being a feminist activist who was sexually assaulted while I was a feminist activist. Like I had already gotten a book deal. I had already mm-hmm. kind of been this public person and it felt Inappropriate and indulgent and kind of too self-involved for me to start talking about being sexually assaulted at that point in my career And I didn't think about it as bravery necessarily, but when I started to write about it I was like, I'm being brave right now because I am going against these traditional understandings of what it means to be a professional woman what it means to be a feminist woman what it kind of means to be proper and politically appropriate in the public space you know and and kind of Jacqueline similar to you feeling like it's my job at this point this isn't brave this is literally just like what I do and going through the motions of it but then even within that I realized that it did require a certain amount of bravery on my part to even come forward with the story because of all the fear I had of how much I was judging myself and how much I felt like my job at this point having Some kind of platform from which to speak, my job is really to elevate other women's voices. So, like, why should I go back to my own, you know, realizing that I kind of done many years of this work without kind of talking about my own story. And so, you know, for me, someone like you, you're so brave, right, that you've been able to talk about it, (laughs) you know, like talk about it so early on in your career and something that's almost become easy for you, but for someone else who kind of hasn't had that ability to kind of talk about it and feel supported in their community and talking about it or for whatever you know in my case like some self-doubt it is you know an an example of 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 courage and of being brave
0: I think you're both brave Mm -hmm. like I'm more like Jacqueline but I also think that part of the reason I lay it all out there with like everyone I ever meet and put it all in my books and stuff is that I feel like I'm controlling my own narrative then. And I'm putting it out there and saying, like, you can't use this against me because I have already talked about it. And so in some ways, whether people perceive that as brave or fearful or what, what I'm doing is managing my own anxiety
2: (laughs) as much as anything else. I think one of the risks, in addition to people attacking and undermining, which, you know, obviously we've all three of us lived through a lot of another risk that you're taking when you're telling your story is getting pigeonholed as like the victim girl. Mm -hmm. When I do talks on campuses or wherever, I tend to just come at it as an expert. Mm -hmm. And I might allude to the fact that I've had the experience of being sexually assaulted. I certainly will talk about it if somebody asks me about it, but I don't tend to lead with it partly because I think that too many anti-rape programs are really just like people telling sad stories and I don't feel like that moves us forward yes. in the way that I want to. I mean, I think there's an it's important to tell those stories, but I think it, there has to be a value add. Like once you get people in that emotional place, you have to give them something to do. But partially it's because, you know, the media and the culture at large really wants experts and victims to be two different yeah. people.
0: Yeah. No, I think all the time about the fact that I- I'm never gonna get a chance to serve on a jury for any kind of sexual assault or rape trial because i know too much basically and so the idea that because i have made a great effort to educate myself on all of the social science surrounding this and write a book about it means that basically that i'm unqualified to be on that jury because any defense lawyer is going to look at me and be like nope yeah.
2: i literally had that experience wow i got called in for a jury for a sexual abuse trial it was a I think his stepfather and, like, a 13-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they asked me, they were like, do you have any reason that you would find it hard to, like, afford this guy, like, the benefit of the doubt? And I was like, yeah, I I do. (laughs) And I I almost wish that I'd lied. Yeah. In the moment, I was just like, I have to get out of here. I don't want to live through this trial. Like, I just honestly was like... I did not feel brave. I was just like, oh my God, please no. But then afterwards, I was kind of haunted by it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if I don't serve on that jury, like, less qualified people are serving on yeah, that jury.
0: Totally. I mean, they they would have kicked you off anyway, but... I know, um, I know, I know.
2: But getting back to the idea of storytelling and, you know, Samita about mm-hmm. telling your story and, and sort of feeling like, oh, I shouldn't be telling my story and, and honestly, your anthology, Nasty Women, like, I feel like, people respond to storytelling, right? Like, it's, it's actually really important that we tell our stories.
3: Yeah, I have to say, so the kind of genesis of me telling that story is I was actually invited to a storytelling retreat as a facilitator. And I gave this whole talk on privilege and bringing your most authentic self to your work versus, you know, what's expected of you or your legitimate self. And I stayed kind of through the weekend through a storytelling workshop and one of the first people that presented was a really good friend of mine who publicly talked about being sexually assaulted and it kind of struck me in this way that you know in all the years of work i've done i had never done before and so at the end i was supposed to facilitate something and i ended up shifting the focus and kind of overcoming all of this self-doubt to basically tell my story of being sexually assaulted and i had never told it publicly before and the number of women that came forward and were like, I also feel like because I have to keep this professional veneer, I can't be vulnerable and I can't talk about these things. And it was such a powerful moment for me of like becoming what I have told other women to be (laughs) for so long, you know, in kind of their storytelling and really seeing that like in that messiness, like that's when, that's when, (laughs) that's when some of our best stuff comes out, right. Is, is in that messiness. And when we let ourselves be vulnerable and, And that's something that, going back to the, like, expert versus survivor, like, there's a lot of performativity around survivors, right? Where in order for us to be believed as survivors, we have to be failed projects in some way. Wow. We have to have, like, our lives derailed in some substantial way. And... I almost Mm -hmm. wonder if like our reluctance to want to lean into that messiness is internalizing some of that messaging that I can show you that I am still strong and still professional and still able to be objective on these issues. And it's like, you know what? Fuck that. I'm not objective. I am old, grumpy, fat, (laughs) and a sexual assault survivor, and I'm angry and I have fun and like I have sex and all of that stuff is true at the same time. Like, why can't I just be this messy person and like still be considered a professional human being?
0: that is an excellent point there is an entire book's worth of the ways that we're not supposed to be if we've been assaulted yeah. or oh, if we've been yeah. victims of of any kind of crime so yeah one theoretical challenge to those
2: stereotypes is absolutely just you know being a boss but being a vulnerable it's not, it, even that is like a paradox yeah. right like you, being a boss absolutely but also that's a lot of pressure right like, yeah yeah absolutely no I, I was just
0: um, yes that is samita's larger point I was just stuck yeah. on the part where she was talking about the fact that she is a boss in tension with those stereotypes about survivors and I hadn't really thought of that because frankly I've always leaned into being a mess um, <laughs>
2: so. that is not yeah, what it looks like my side <laughs> page. Oh, thank you.
3: the last. Oh, my. <laughs> the way that i would describe you publicly like i was like you know i'm gonna reach out to kate harding because that's someone who gets shit done like (laughs) (laughs) oh man you only see
2: the product projects i finish (laughs) but that's true of everyone that's true of all of us kate yeah i suppose it is how was making the book for you you guys had to put this together so fast
3: Yeah, I mean, I almost feel, like, bad because it was such a seamless experience. (laughs) It's like, you know, we had the idea, like, days after the election, I saw Kate post something kind of similar to it on Facebook. I immediately DM'd her. We had a proposal written like three days later. Like it was like record time. Like it was like, or not like maybe like a weekend later. We like, it was like one phone conversation and her and I in a Google document for like half a day. I think what really worked out for us more than anything was timing and and getting those initial emails out and getting the commitments really early on while people were really in their feelings about the election still. And for me, it was really this like expression of my own, anxiety and frustration because you know I, I think we all share this like the, the election night was such a deep breaking point for me I mean it's like a oh pivotal God, yeah. moment in my personal life where things really like mentally I had such a hard time and for the first time in my life I had to go on antidepressants and started like several different types of therapy and like couldn't even get to work half the time was like sobbing all the time L- literally like it became this thing that just resonated in so many different parts of my life and so the book gave me this like really optimistic positive thing to put all my energy into and we hit a moment that you know just a few months later the women's march you have this kind of like historic outcry of all the issues that kind of were agitated during the election it was really the one of gender that people felt the most kind of passionate about and so I think because we had that momentum, people were, you know, at a really, really short turnaround, like it was literally like you can do this or you cannot be in the book. You know, and and obviously it was exhausting and it was difficult. And I think like particularly, you know, Kate, you can speak for yourself, like getting our own essays out was really hard. And like the first 100 days, which was really like a gut punch, right? Every, Every single day, it was like, what fresh hell today? But then we could turn around and edit, you know, someone amazing like Sam Irby's essay about being a queer black woman in Trump's America or, you know, any of the other amazing essays that we have that kind of I I think like for me and and I don't Kate you can speak to you like it was almost like a kind of therapy for me to be able to go back to that and know that I was doing something that wasn't what I was seeing in the news every day definitely so it definitely felt to me
0: like a grief process when I realized that Trump was elected and I know that this is the kind of thing that as soon as you say it like you know this is what makes people tweet at you 10,000
2: times that you're a fucking snowflake but Whatever with those fuckers. Literally, my Jewish friends and I were talking about sitting Shiva after the election. Right, yeah. Like,
0: it's, it, yeah. And, well, because R.I.P. democracy, right? Like, this was right. on so many levels. And so the book, in some ways, was sort of like, you know, when I talk to people who have lost parents or whatever, and they're like, I don't even have time to grieve because I have to get up and take care of my kid. In some ways, Nasty Women, women was our kid that we had to take care of. But also, I think, honestly, the, the fast turnaround was hugely important for us because... It meant that, like, none of us had time to think too hard about it or to get too much down into dwelling and freaking out. It was just like, okay, you know, we got deadlines. We got to do it. Which, and I still, you know, I pushed the deadline as long as I possibly could on finishing my essay.
3: But... (laughs) I think also the power of partnering with somebody who it's like mutual respect and mutual trust and like Kate and I all through the process like we knew we could trust each other to like hold each other up when one person was having a harder time than the other and that like you know we'd be like okay this is the deadline but not be like not but there was never any drama there was like this accountability but it was like the perfect kind of accountability because I knew if I was fucking up she wouldn't judge me for it and and right (laughs) it was it was much more I don't want to let Samita down than. Like I'm afraid somebody's right, gonna get is mad. Right, which is like exactly that. where you want to be in a work partnership. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that really, really helped.
2: Aren't they the best? Again, that is Samita Mukhopadhyay and Kate Harding, editors of the brand new anthology, Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance and Revolution in Trump's America out today. Uh, You can find information about how to buy the book and where on all the tour dates they're going to be having at nastywomenanthology.com. That's got all the buying info and tour dates you could need, including details on the date I will be joining them for in Boston You can also follow Samita and Kate on Twitter at the Samita. That's T-H-E-S-A-M-H-I-T-A and at Kate Harding, K-A-T-E-H-A-R-D-I-N-G. And I, of course, am Jacqueline Friedman. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Jacqueline F, J A C L Y N F. on Instagram at JacquelineFable. You can find my tour dates and all kinds of stuff about my writing and past shows and where to buy my book, Unscrewed, at JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. Uh, you can find this show wherever fine podcasts are available. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Acast, and you know what I'm going to say when you're in there. Make sure you're subscribed and then give us five stars. Give us a one or two sentence review. Help spread the Unscrewed word. Also, while you're in there, subscribe to Feminasty, Kate and Samita's show. It's going to be awesome and not just because I'm on it. Unscrewed is produced and edited by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman. Our In-N-Out music is by The Pink Tiles and our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna, and was developed in collaboration with The Establishment, who also developed The Sound Cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives.